listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. As many of you know, one of my great uh, flaws as a human being is that uh, I like things neat and orderly, and um, I'm married to someone who really couldn't care less about neat and orderly. It's my karma. Um, uh, and I had this amazing <laughs> and rather silly epiphany um, the other day that was spurred on by uh, one of my Twitter compatriots where he had this, this uh, tweet, which is a, just a little message that goes on. I don't know if you're familiar with Twitter, but it's a really neat little uh, tool that allows you to share stuff, um, uh, share a moment that you're having, share a picture, share an article, you know, things of that nature. And uh, my friend Stuart said, uh, ah, I get home, house is a mess. Reminds me, I have daughters. <laughs> it's like, yeah, how nice is that? And it really kind of took the edge off of uh, uh, what I was, you know, feeling kind of uh, just we're we're still um, we're still dealing with a lot of sleeplessness, and it's been now uh, nearly four years, and so it's just, and I'm not a spring chicken. Uh, I am. For, I like to think of myself as 46 years young, but I'm actually feeling more like 46 years might snap. Um, uh, and break or something. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, the stresses that that brings in uh, relationship, the stresses that brings with just being able to find, cultivate, and nourish solitude, it's, it's been an incredible gift to my practice, I think, in a lot of different ways because it's forced uh, in a real powerful way to reconfigure, you know? Um, so anyway, uh, I've been really trying to become very, very intimate with all the areas in which I might have, uh, or in areas that, where there might be lingering, clinging that I have not paid attention to for years. And in that way, these challenges to our practice are such gifts. I mean, it really kind of goes without saying, but when, whenever the universe delivers a blow or whenever the universe offers up something that really gets us into a space of, oh my God, or no way, or whatever, it actually goes back to this old adage that I've given this sangha so many times that now I get to use a little bit more regularly, which is bring it. Come on, bring it. What do you got for me now, Mara? Mara, of course, is the is the the devil in Jewish uh, Jewish. 
Jewish mythology. Buddhist Jewish mythology. Yes. <laughs> it's actually, it's not Mara, it's Maya. Um, teasing. <laughs> so Buddha, is that enough for you? <laughs> Uh, Mara would, comes to the Buddha and keeps giving him temptation, keeps giving him pain, keeps giving him just boom, boom, and the Buddha just doesn't flinch, stays steady, okay? Now, I'm not going to go all fundamentalist on you and say, this is what happened, because no one has any idea. The Buddhist teaching was all related by, you know, word of mouth <coughs> hundreds of years after he died. It's not important. Teaching's still awesome. Okay, it's still very, very powerful. And this idea that any of us uh, who, you know, think that, uh, you know, oh, I'm close. I'm close to awakening, or even worse, I am awakened, or whatever, we hopefully get Mara showing up a lot, reminding us, hey man, this is serious business. Don't waste time. Study yourself. Study your egoic tendencies. Study whatever it is in you that feels stable. Whatever it is that feels secure. Get right next to that. Get right next to that, always. Know that the rug will be pulled out from under you. Know that whatever feels rock solid is indeed illusory. And before you freak out on this, you know, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to actually meet your life more and more and more fully, no matter what's showing up no matter what type of trial or tribulation, no matter what type of ecstasy or success, no matter what, we're being offered this gift of life. And the Dharma, in many respects, is questioning and studying it. It's letting go, not doing harm, and then continually training our mind so that the mind doesn't train us. That we can begin to see the mind as an object, an experience. We can begin to see the body as an experience. We can be able to see feelings, sensations, emotions as experiences. And then as we start to recognize this series of experiences in mind and in body, we start recognizing, oh my gosh, what's the experiencer? Because the experiencer of these experiences is not bound by any of them. It can't be. I can see this bell. Therefore, the seer of this bell is the subject and this is the object. They're not the same. Th oh my goodness. What is this seer of experience? Just like we can see the bell, we can see the mind. It becomes an object. The body becomes an object. And there's tremendous freedom in that realization that whatever we have going on is simply a mind object. It's not a problem. It's a situation. How are we going to meet it? How are we going to deal with it? How can we, more importantly, meet it absolutely fully without 
flinching? How can we welcome it as the Buddha welcomed Mara? Or Maya, depending on what you like, okay? <laughs> if there's no self, whose arthritis is this? <laughs> So in our sitting tonight, don't be afraid to get next to something you've been struggling with. Don't be afraid of that dance. Don't be afraid of getting right next to it. Now, this does not, does not mean that you should begin going into, at least, uh, you know, in your meditation, kind of a hand-to-hand -hand combat. Don't, do not turn into Bruce Lee, you know, and try to kick any aspect of yourself's ass. That is not the point. What is the point is actually being fearless. It's actually getting right next to it. This life, this moment, whatever's going on. And the more we practice that, the greater the depth and expanse of our own awareness. And the greater the depth and expanse of our own awareness, the greater the depth and the expanse of our own offering to our fellow human beings and to ourselves can be continually. And in this way, we all can practice together. This work that we're doing in here becomes not just for the benefit of my blood pressure. It becomes for the benefit of all beings. And that's where we're best, folks, in that style of generosity, that huge opening for the benefit of all beings. We are all God's children. And all of God's children got Mara coming at them all the time. Dance with them. You guys, is, it, is that okay? I don't bite <laughs> often. <laughs> Makes it more cozy this way. And I get to pick on both of you. So. We get to pick on you. Yes, true, you get to pick on me. Very good, touche. <laughs> Watch it, Zen boy. <laughs> so embracing this idea of really dancing with whatever is showing up. It's so elemental. It's so basic to this work. It's so simple but not easy. And uh, I mean, I know I use this silly, actually, it's, it's this beautiful quote all the time uh, from the bard. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler, excuse me, whether to suffer 
One more time, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take up arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep no more. Die to what? To sleep no more. What would that be like? To sleep no more. To, in other words, awaken. That's what Hamlet's talking about there. You know, it's not just the existential, you know, to be or not to be. It's, it's that plus more. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take up arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. We'll never end our troubles. Now, the mind might think we can end them. The troubles will always be there. Our relationship to the troubles can, in fact, shift miraculously, radically, overwhelmingly towards this spaciousness that allows for expanse, that allows for a little bit of a looser approach to being in the world. Doesn't mean we'll float around. It does mean, however, that we're no, long, no longer hampered and hindered by this sleep. We sleep no more. We endeavor to meet our life fully, squarely. There is no adroit move. There is no half-truth. It is all real, all true, all here, all now, all the time. And in that kind of commitment, we, t we start to see that there is a permeability in this sense of, well, this is all real. Well, yeah, it is, on the one hand. On the other hand, there's this fluidity to our experience. This body that we have is very real. But it's also a fluid experience. This mind... And these thoughts that we have, they're all real, but we also have them as an experience. What is it that is experiencing them? It's as if there's this division. One that's bound and small and clinging, and the other one that's open and expansive and can observe at every turn the clinging itself. And as we kind of back into that spacious witnessing awareness, what do we have? We have freedom. When we can actually ground that experience, we live and embody freedom. Typically, we walk around in... Um, life as if there is always something that's unfulfilled. And this is a pretty natural space. This is a fairly natural, a natural order of stuff. We start seeing that on some level it all hurts. We might have fleeting moments of, uh, of blissful openness or, you know, where we really feel just connected to all things. We might have fleeting moments of that. But for the most part, it all hurts. 
And the reason why this hurts is because we are hanging on, quite literally, for dear life. That's what the mind has us doing. We're hanging on. Okay? And most of us have learned to hang on really well. Except the Buddhist teaching throws this really cool curveball and it says, all of your suffering is because of hanging on. Well, what the hell are we supposed to do then? Let go? Let go and let God? Yeah, what bullshit is that, man? There's no way. If I let go, everything flies, <laughs> flies right off the hand. I mean, it's going to be hell. Why don't you try it? Start small, but try it. Try letting go. Try letting go. Try not harming yourself or other with the choices and decisions that you make. Try that. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine what it would be like if you were no longer choosing or making choices that caused harm to self or other? Can you imagine if your life was being lived so that there could be even more gifts of consciousness? The natural outcropping of which is happiness, peace. It allows us to go deeper when we do this. When we are experiencing, for instance, feelings and thoughts, especially the feelings and thoughts that we like, especially the feelings and thoughts, let's say, that another person gives us, what we're doing is we're allowing ourselves to be satisfied with what's on the surface of this experience we call life. And here again, this is normal. Awakening, on the other hand, is not normal. What's also, what will also become readily apparent is that if you spend a lot of time on that surface, you recognize that stuff is even more fleeting when it comes to depth. And this is hard. At some point, we, we need to make a choice, kind of. It's like, damn, do I, do I keep doing this? Or do I actually... As Pema Chodron says, instead of always turning right, you actually turn left. Or did she say it the other way around? I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Whatever she said was right. Left. You get it. Anyway, the point is that you know we tend to habitually go in one particular direction. We tend to go towards feeling good. Okay? And what that does when we are always going towards feeling good, when we are always kind of in that space, well, whatever feels good, I will do. There's this quasi-hedonistic, egoic lock that begins to happen. Or in physics, we call it a phase lock, where we just, we're right there, and we always are turning. And if we're always turning in the same exact direction, making the same choices over and over again, what are we doing? We're going around in circles. And we wonder, how come... You know, there's this circuitous aspect to it. I keep doing this again and again. 
Why? Well, you're making the same exact choice. Instead of going towards consciousness, we go towards pleasure. And it's not that pleasure is wrong. Pleasure is beautiful. As long as we don't become addicted to it. Addiction, put simply, is our inability to face our own discomfort. We can't face it. So what do we do? We turn. And we turn towards that which we habitually have learned to recognize will save us from that discomfort. Maybe it's an activity. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's people or a group, whatever. And this isn't something to feel ashamed about. We should not feel ashamed of leaning in that direction. What we should instead do is feel inspired to look carefully at it because what will that do? In looking carefully at what we're doing, we begin to at least have another option. We begin to have a choice that becomes deeply conscious. It's kind of a cool part of the Dharma, I actually think, looking at our compulsions to go in a certain direction. It's not always pretty. Uh, we, we are attracted to Buddhism because we see, you know, the, the imagery of this, you know, unbelievably calm face and so forth. Well, the f calm face and the still body and the, uh, you know, the bliss experiences or whatever else, you know, you're, you're throwing on this, this practice, be it Buddhist or any of the other non-dual contemplative traditions. What's so alluring is that these people, these enlightened sages, seem to be unhindered in their ability to move through the world. And this is really kind of cool. How does this happen? Well, it's because they meet each experience. Instead of going towards pleasure, they go towards awareness. There are things that can get in the way of this, and I just want to kind of play with this a little bit. Number one, identifying with our past, okay, is a great uh, space for addiction, okay? I don't know if you uh, ever find yourself uh, with, the, you know, repeating either internally or maybe even externally stories of your past. It's not that they're bad, but they're a great place for the ego to develop a sense of place. Yeah, well, my father didn't really love me the way he should have, and therefore, or there is an incredible lack of availability on the part of every single person I ever tried to go out with, or there, you get the idea? You know, we have something from our past, and, and, and we build these stories around them, and those stories become so tight that we actually create an identity around them. In fact, I would say identity is the sum total of your past stories that you cling to. I am a good blank, fill it. I am a horrible blank, fill that. Whatever you're, I, however you identify with experience comes from past. And that identity, that mask that we show the world, it's not that it's 
bad. It's not that it's good. It's that we ultimately are much more than this. We are what's behind the mask. The other place is identifying with the future. When we identify the, with the past, we typically run into this experience of, oh, it wasn't enough. I didn't make the right choices, or I made some really good choices, but I went, and then we had the temerity, the guts to say, ah, no regrets. When in actuality, so many of us have so many regrets, deep ones, that we're just unwilling to face. Meditation disabuses us of that tendency. <laughs> you can't, there's no hiding. And if you can embrace that openly, the fact that you can't hide as your practice begins to deepen, you've got an adventure on your hands that, while scary, will turn into, most likely, your first roller coaster experience. I remember mine was at the, uh, was at the Matterhorn in Disneyland about 1968 or so. And I was sitting next to this, uh, well, I guess on the Matterhorn, I was with my dad. I remember this vividly. He's behind me. And then uh, Mike and Harry Saxton were behind, um, behind them. And we were flying down this thing. And I had just cleared the, you know, Mickey's got his finger. You must be this high. To, you know, so I, I just cleared that thing. So I was really excited about this. And uh, the minute the thing kind of started going, you know, leaving the dock and then going up into the mountain, um, I thought I was going to die. Now, Dad couldn't see my face. How you doing, bud? Fine, Dad. <gasps> you know, absolutely convinced that's what was going on. It wasn't until midway through the ride when I just kind of gave up. What the hell else am I going to do? Get off? You know, you're on the ride. And this is so much like the Dharma. You can't go back. At some level, you just can't go back. And you also don't want to. You start allowing the thrill to be just that. You allow the not knowing. You allow the adventure of the turn. You know, you let it kind of whip you around, but you also remain right there with it all. Cool thing is, Unlike the Matterhorn, which has only been in existence now for about 50-some-odd years, the Dharma's been around for about, depending on who you talk to, some version of it, maybe 3,500 years. No one has died because of the Dharma. And I think there's only one major injury on you know, the Matterhorn, but let's just be clear here. Dharma, 100% safety rate. And 100% mortality rate for the ego. It dies to its old existence. It doesn't die as in can no longer be used. But it kind of burns away. And this burn is glorious. It's what brings light. Identifying with our future, I, I wanted to just touch on here again. I 
apologize for my um, Disney experience. Uh, but the idea that dreams and aspirations and outcomes, that, that, that we live in that space, and that at some point we have to reconcile the fact that all those dreams, aspirations, and outcomes that we had uh, set for ourselves might not happen the way we expected. Actually, they didn't at all, damn it. Or some yes, some no, but making peace with the fact that every single thing you set out to do, if you're incredibly driven or incredibly future-oriented in your experience, being able to make peace with that, being able to let go, being able to, instead of constantly turning in the same direction, you actually are opening to not having everything work out as planned. This is particularly hard for many of us. Um, what happens when we are future-minded is it keeps anxiety and fear alive. Just like being past in our orientation uh, continually keeps our residual pain and our identity firmly affixed. Future life is this anxiety and fear quotient just goes right off the charts. It's a way of allowing ego to stay in charge. It won't burn away in that space. What does burn it away? Once again, just like with past, we bring our full attentive awareness to it without flinching. We dance with it. I see this going on. We begin to see also that there are these very simple elemental aspects of past and future, or non-now, non-presence. We see these things show up in some pretty distinctive ways. We begin to recognize that um, we're hindered whenever we get swallowed up by desire. Desire is beautiful. It is what adds spice, especially when you can act on that desire and it's something that is shared with another being or the experience itself is something that allows you to actually kind of lose who and what you ever thought you were. But if it brings pleasure and we cling to that pleasure, it fuels more desire and what does it do? It takes us spinning. Again, desire is not bad. Our relationship to it can veil awakening from our sight. Same thing with anger. Anger in and of itself is not necessarily bad. It's an expression of ferocity. Sometimes it's really appropriate. It may sound like anger. It's not always anger. Sometimes saying no no way is one of the most loving things you could ever say, one of the most compassionate and wise things you could ever say. Oh, but a Buddhist doesn't supposed to be angry. Yeah. Well, is it angry? Anger typically is you versus me, right? But it can also be expressed, just like desire can be expressed as a celebratory openness to whatever is, anger can be expressed as a resolute clarion call for truth. Being able to wisely judge 
evaluate, consider where your anger is coming from and how it's manifesting is key. Because if it's about gain, it's about ego. If desire itself is about gain, it's about ego. If it's about celebratory openness or a clear and direct communication out of a space of tenderness, now we're talking about enlightened communication. Third one, laziness. Laziness is difficult for, for uh, people because laziness actually is symptomatic often of depression. I've never met a lazy kid, for instance. I've never met a lazy person. I've met a depressed person filled with doubt. But laziness, laziness will once again veil awakening for our side, from, from our side. It keeps us spinning. It's about not facing what's actually going on, not meeting it with your full energetic potential. It's an avoidance pattern, okay? No. There won't be pleasure in that, and there's a little bit of pleasure in not doing this for the moment. That's exactly where laziness tends to take us. The most useless of all emotions, of course. Next one, worry. Worry is a tremendous hindrance. What is it about? Well, it's basically about recognizing here is what is, and here is what I want to happen and damn it, it may not happen, or something bad may happen, and if something, what's, ha what's happened? There's no more present moment awareness. We are locked into worry, just like we're locked into laziness, or locked into anger, or desire, or whatever. Instead of letting this present moment orientation begin to fuel this expanse, what do we do? We deny it. Because we are, believe it or not, more comfortable dealing with the pain of something that's in the future than we are with dealing with what's exactly going on in this moment. Lastly, doubt. The last of these hindrances that I wanted to talk about was doubt. Now, doubt's a really cool one because it's something I encourage, okay? I encourage you to doubt every single thing that I say. I encourage you to never Never take what I say as truth unless you can verify it for yourself. All I can do is speak from experience. Okay? That's it. And as such, it's pretty worthless. Unless you try it out. And then if you try it out and see that there's a degree of validity to it, keep going. Keep going. But question, question, question. Doubt, doubt, doubt. However, if your doubt becomes something that you cling to or becomes a vehicle of comfort, then what happens? The doubt, instead of serving this questioning mind that this practice requires, instead of a questioning mind, you have what becomes a mind that becomes a, a closed mind, I should say. <laughs> Just like the obsession of desire begins to close our mind, so too does an obsession with, nope, I doubt that. Just like the same thing with worry, the closure that comes from obsessively worrying or obsessively avoiding, as in laziness, or obsessively fighting like in anger. 
every one of those can become an addiction. Every one of those can help us keep what's actually happening at bay. Every single one of those bits of identification with future and with past. Everything, everything that tells us, well, this is who I've always been. This is who I've been. This is the role I'm expected to play based on culture, family, or past habitual inertia, whatever it happens to be. All of this needs to be called into question so that we can actually allow ourselves, instead of spinning off to the side of life stream, we can actually get right back in the center of that flow. And in that flow, everything is available. Everything is available. few minutes if anybody has anything they'd like to ask. Yes, ma'am. So, um, I understand the addictions. Mm -hmm. I understand the turning or the turning towards the addictions. But what's the link? What's that moment that makes mm -hmm. you wake up and say, Oh, I'm not going to turn in the same direction. Is that courage, or what is that? Yeah, yeah. The technical term for it in Buddhism, we re we refer to it as balls. Uh, balls. <laughs> yeah, it's a little late for me. Yeah, balls. Yeah, <laughs> teasing you. Yes, it's it is. It's courage. It's courage. It's fortitude. It's resolve. It's a vow. Right? Vows are really powerful. I always thought they were such a joke. I remember when I was like, you know, I'd been. I'd been a, like a really serious meditator, a serious member of this community, this Zen community for quite some time. And they're like, you know, you've been doing this for how long? I'm like, yeah, I don't know, about 10 years. They're like, really? Well, why don't you take the precepts that allow you to become a lay ordained, you know, monk and so forth? And I'm like, precepts? I don't need no stinking precepts. <laughs> you know, what the, why? And... The, there's, I realized I was avoiding. I was doubting. I was worrying. I was desiring. I was angry. I was lazy. I mean, every one of the hindrances was right there in that, in that little mix for, for me. Now, I don't think taking the vows is necessarily the right move for people. I also don't think ultimately it's really necessary. But in the context of my experience, it was ultimately the appropriate move. It was like, you know, you get to a point where it's like, you're either going to do this or you're not. And if you're going to do this in this tradition, go for it. And, I, and so what I did was I actually then took those vows. I sewed that robe. And I suck at sewing, so it was a really cool thing, because I was like bleeding throughout my little rakasu. There's blood all over it. it you know? But in this, like, in this sangha, 
we don't, you know, there, there's, no, there's no vehicle for this. It just is really, how badly do you want this? At some point in time, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, a dialogue uh, uh, that I heard that just cracked me up. Uh, you know, this person, the student asks, you know, well, how is it that, that I, uh, you know, I can't seem to stop my afflictions. I can't seem to stop my, you know, acting on my addictions and so forth. What should I do? Don't stop, says the teacher. You keep going. You keep going until you either decide you're ready or you don't have any other choice. Right? And so it does take a certain element. I mean, I was kidding about it, but it takes tremendous courage. You also got to want it. But isn't that an attachment? It can be, but the beautiful thing about that attachment, the beautiful thing about the vow, is it becomes a guide as opposed to something you cling to. It becomes like, you know, the, uh, a, a string that you would cast out if you are. Uh, 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 you know, going spelunking in a cave or something like that. So you want to make sure you can get back. Does this make sense? So instead of, it always appears to the ego as clinging. But then the deeper you get, the more you start recognizing, oh my goodness gracious, this isn't clinging at all. This is the path to openness. This is the path to release. And then guess what happens to the path? It kind of falls away too. So it's basically this big giant Suicide mission, you know? Not for, not, I mean, but it, it's like the things that you don't need. I think I understand what you're saying. So with chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, well, well okay, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't even go there. That yeah, that was right. Ooh, yeah. Chocolate chip cookies, addicted. Yeah. Every time. But you're aware. Yeah, so what? It just there is no awakening the minute the chocolate chips open up in our house. There, there is so little enlightenment uh, the minute that blender. You hear the KitchenAid batting those things around that clickety click. You go ha ha ha. It's just horrible. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, recently, getting in touch with. Routine, my or routines. Mm -hmm. It happened at the uh, retreat. Yeah. Where I really, because things were thrown out of whack and different, everything was different. But how routine my, something like Groundhog Day, the movie. Yes. I get up and go, God, did I, didn't that just happen? Didn't I just brush my teeth? You know? mm -hmm. Is that an addiction? Is that clinging? I think that habits are clinging. I think meeting your experience fully makes the clinging impossible. So the minute you start meeting your habits fully is the minute they're no longer habits, but they're actually invitations into the heart of awakening. This may sound funny, but it actually is very similar to where we just went with Iris's question. Okay, The minute we actually start to just let the schedule support us on retreat or in a sashin, if it's an extended one for a Zen sashin or something like that. The minute we kind of just let the schedule support us is the minute there's a tremendous amount of freedom. The minute we vow, the minute we commit, everything kind of pops open. It's that way in a marriage. 
you know? I mean, I'm, I'm all in favor of living together. I mean, I think that's great. But the minute two people decide, you know what? Let's, let's add this extra layer. What happens? A certain vitality shows up. Now, is that an attachment? Well, you better hope not. You better hope that marriages are not uh, celebrations uh, masked, you know, masking, as, how should I say this? That marriages aren't attachments that are pretending to be uh, openings. It's very easy for us to do that. And so that's why they take considerable care. Um, it's, 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 it's really important that we not habitualize, for instance, relationship. That we not habitualize our day-to-day. -day. And the best thing I can think of just off the top of my head is this, and this is a real sticky place for me, I just think it's so cool. Uh, in the morning, and in the evening, really brush your teeth. <laughs> really, really brush them. Not with vigorously necessarily, but just really, good God, you know, really wash those dishes. The smell, the feeling, the bubbles, you know, change everything. And if you can do that with washing the dishes, you can do it with anything. You know, I'm doing it, you know, now with the, the dirty diaper samadhi, you know. <laughs> I had shit everywhere the other day. It's like, you know, what do you do? At some point, you just kind of, ah, bows, baby. Thank you, you know. But it's, it's that way for all of us. Every one of us has, I've been a little scatological today, haven't I? Apologize for that. A little gross? If, if so, apologize. Uh, whatever the, um, whatever it happens to be. I mean, I would explain it. I didn't mean the retreat was routine. Mm -hmm. I mean, like outside of it. Did I explain that correctly? Oh, maybe I missed. Maybe yeah, I missed you. Know, I really got in touch with my routines outside of. Oh, I see. How cool is that? You know, I thought the retreat was. You know, yeah. Well, and so, so. <laughs> Two thumbs up for retreats, right? Well, so I got in touch with the routines that happen outside of there on a day-to-day -day basis that I just do almost by. Okay, well then let's apply the same thing here then. Okay. Those routines that you experience, that you have, bring full mindfulness into them, and that's one of the gifts that retreat can offer. Full mindfulness into whatever routines you may have, whatever habits may spin or snowball. They stop snowballing the minute you begin to actually recognize what their component parts are. And if you can experience each of those component parts fully, it can't, it can't increase in size inappropriately. Yeah. yeah. Did I see a hand over here? I'm sorry. We're good? Yeah. Hey. Okay. So I think I heard you say don't run pleasure, when you start to if you catch yourself looking at regret and, oh, I wish, or the future, don't, you know, go this way, go into it. Mm -mm. No? You don't go into it, you dance with it. Dance with so it. So there's a difference, okay? In other words, if you're actually going into it, you're indulging it, which is a form of grasping, okay? If you're avoiding it, you're going in the whirlpool, right? There's a place right in between 
Scylla and Charybdis here. We're right in between. And what you're doing is you're open to what is coming up without grabbing it or pushing it away. It might not be pleasurable. So what do you do? You explore the feeling of non-pleasure. It might be really painful. What do you do? You sit right in the middle of it without going after it or pushing it away. Okay? And what happens is that type of practice burns away all the stuff we don't need. It doesn't feel good. Okay? But the steadiness that you begin to train your mind with in meditation actually allows for a certain presence to be there even in the face of it. Okay? And over time, what happens? The stuff you truly don't need any longer is no longer really there. What's left? Glory. What's left? Openness. What's left? Joy. Not just happiness which usually comes from something external, but joy, which comes from this deep internality that you've been fostering and building upon. Is the dancing, I think you said exploring, it's kind of just noticing it, but not grabbing onto it and indulging yourself. In yeah, it. for instance, if you and I were gonna dance right now, okay, right? If we were gonna dance, and I mean like, like real dancing, not like 80s style pogo dancing or something like that. <laughs> which was pretty cool. But anyway, if we were going to dance, you and I, in order to make it something really special, would require from each other just the right amount of tension, right? I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to support your, you know, your back so that you can, when you're, if I'm leading, okay, that I can actually spin you, right? Mm -hmm. And I can't spin you unless you push back a little. Okay, so there's this real interesting, beautiful dynamic that occurs. And it's actually the same dynamic that occurs in space with black holes pulling in and galaxies spinning out. And the whole universe moves because of it, those polarities, all right? And so being able to do that for yourself, within yourself, develops this amazing capacity amazing capacity for awareness. Do you believe in doing like that Lady Byron Katie, the turnaround kind of thing? Yeah. Like reframing the story? Oh, I think she's great. I think she's absolutely great. Is that a type of kind of dancing? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah. Byron Katie, I think, does a great job. She calls it the work. And I think it's absolutely profoundly cool. Okay. And it is, in many respects, kind of what I'm talking about with different flavors and language and so forth. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, those stories that you've got going on? Yeah. They're false. Yeah. You just flip them around. You just, you look at them for what they are, as they are, and you start, you start recognizing, God, I've always, huh. And maybe it's not that it's false, but it's amazingly incomplete. Yeah. And so you've been walking around authoring these incredibly incomplete stories about who you are or who you are not mm -hmm. and what you fear and what you don't fear. And so what you've been doing is this the whole time, okay? And what this practice does is it allows for <laughs> that, okay? You okay, kid? <laughs> you just had an awakening experience, didn't you? Awesome. Okay, good night, everybody. Thank you very much. No, thank you. I really appreciate you coming tonight.